So Lord, again, we just thank you for your word. Uh, We are ever mindful that apart from your word, we would be just hopelessly lost. Even though as we heard this morning, you have borne witness to yourself in creation and in our conscience, and yet those are uh, so small, so minimal compared to all that you've revealed to us in your word. And uh, we, we want to know your word it's only a small book of what you've revealed to us, and uh, we want to know it through and through. And so I pray, Lord, that as we spend more time looking at another book tonight, that you would grant us uh, just attentive minds, grant me clarity, and may we walk away understanding the book of Exodus much better, and may that just be a, a sturdy foundation uh, for our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to... Jump into Exodus, but I want to start with just a little bit of a review of Genesis, just those high high altitude things. Ideally, we would have reviewed Genesis at the end, some of those major facts, Um, but I want to just briefly review it. And you may be wondering, for moving on to a new book, why go back and review the previous book? And the reason's because in many ways, Exodus is merely part two of a five-part book, a five-chapter book, the Pentateuch, consisting of Genesis through Deuteronomy, and we're just moving from chapter 1 to chapter 2, and everywhere Moses assumes that we have the book of Genesis in mind as we're reading the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus extends the story that is begun in Genesis into a new phase of the story, but it's the same story continuing the same plot. So, does anyone remember what I said is God's purpose in creation? I had said it was to to fill his creation with his image bearers who will live in his relational presence and rule over creation on his behalf. So that's what we saw in creation as being God's purpose. But we discovered that pretty quickly things change. That was God's purpose, but there's this rebellion, this mutiny. Essentially, uh, the Lord set up this system in the garden that absolutely required that man trust him, that man depend upon him, that man be subordinate to him, right? He had a vice regent role. He wasn't totally independent, even though he had a, a royal responsibility. And the tree of knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was always there to expose a lapse in this trust. Namely, what I had said before was a pursuit of epistemic autonomy, being independent in one's choices, in deciding what's good and what's right. A desire to render independent, autonomous judgment, to not take God at his word, but to judge the rightness of his word for oneself. And without that trust in the Lord, the arrangement in the garden simply wasn't viable. It simply couldn't continue. Humanity would be rejecting, like I said, the vice part of his vice regency role, rejecting his subordinate and dependent place in creation. He would be seeking to make himself independent of God, and really in that sense, equal with God, on an equal plane with God. In a word, it would be a rebellion, even a mutiny. 
And that's exactly what humanity did. That choice to no longer trust and be subordinate to God was kind of flushed out through the tree of knowledge. And this whole arrangement is turned on its head. And the incompatibility of rebellion with the original arrangement is evident in the way that the consequences of this rebellion so directly oppose God's purposes in creation. Whereas humanity was to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, Genesis 1.28, the difficulty in conception and birth, Genesis 3.16, opposes that. A second one. Whereas humanity was to work and keep the garden, Genesis 2.15, the curse on the ground, Genesis 3.17-19, opposes that. And a third one. Whereas humanity was to extend the blessings of the garden to the whole earth, expulsion from that garden opposed that, prevented that. These consequences were then very evident in the subsequent scenes. Cain murders Abel. Then you get to the end of Cain's line, and now you have Lamech, who's boasting of his multiplied murders. And then it gets even further to the point where violence and wickedness has become so great on the earth that the Lord must wipe them out with a flood. And even after that, it just reaches the same climax again with the Tower of Babel, right? So we're seeing the carnage caused by this rebellion everywhere. But all hope was not lost. Because God had promised this singular offspring of the woman in Genesis 3.15 who would crush the serpent who embodied just uh, this evil element in creation that opposes God and his purposes. And in that way, that seed of the woman would restore and complete uh, God's plan for creation. And the lineage of this seed, you'll remember, was traced first to Noah, then to Abraham, and then in Abraham, a series of promises are given. Promises which are specifically aimed at restoring God's creation purposes, right? So basically, all hope of the world is then channeled and funneled into Abraham. And those promises really just echo. Do you guys remember that little table I gave you? It echoes God's purposes in creation, and in that sense, overturns the consequences of the fall. So, just to reiterate those, God promised to bless Abraham and through him to bless all the rest of creation. And that's so important to remember. Never for a moment is God's concern for Abraham and Israel, is that, is that the end? Is that the final goal? His blessing of Abraham and Israel always has the blessings of all nations, the blessing of all nations, as its ultimate goal. And the nature of the blessing for Abraham was indicated to be primarily a multitude of descendants and land, right? Multitude of descendants and land. But I also noted that there were some other ones, like that Yahweh would be their God. The Lord would be their God and they would be his people. That would essentially indicate a restoration of the relationship humans were intended to have with God and which they enjoyed before the start of the rebellion. A second one of these additional ones uh, would be that kings would come from Abraham, and then also that a particular offspring of Abraham would conquer the enemies of Abraham's great nation and mediate blessings to all nations. 
I know I'm moving quickly from those, but it's just reviewing what should be in the handout I gave you guys last week. And as the promise is developed in detail and passed on to subsequent generations with each um, new narrative, each new scene in Genesis, we observe there's only a small, partial fulfillment of those promises during the time covered by Genesis. But there's hope for fulfillment in the future. So let me just take you to a few of those most important texts as we turn over to Exodus. So take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 15. You'll remember Genesis chapter 15 is where the covenant is first made. And here it's specifically related to the land. Even though just before the formal covenant, he there also promises the multitude of descendants to Abraham. But to look at uh, Genesis 15, beginning in verse 13. God said to Abram, Now, sorry, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you will be buried at a good old age. Then, in the fourth generation, they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So there's an expectation they're going to be gone, even this very early stage, when the land is just being sworn to Abraham, already he's saying, you aren't going to inherit it right away. There's going to be this period of sojourning in Egypt, even enslavement in Egypt, before you're brought back. So it's not surprising or concerning that by the end of Genesis, they haven't realized any kind of significant ownership of land in the promised land. Next, turn toward the end of Genesis to chapter 46. And this passage is very important. Genesis chapter 46. So there's a couple times that the patriarchs leave the land, usually because of famine, and each time before this, it's viewed negatively because God promised the land to them. They need to trust the Lord and stay in the land. One time, remember if it's Isaac or Jacob, they actually do. The Lord says, stay here, and he does. And it actually says right away, the Lord blesses him. And his crops are abundant and all of this, even though he's ready to flee because of famine. So here we find in chapter 46, Jacob is again, there's a situation of a famine. Remember the famine that Joseph's overseeing in Egypt, making sure there's stores of grain for this. And Joseph's invited him to come down and live there. So within the plot of the book so far, there's a certain hesitation about him doing this. But the Lord appears to him in chapter 46 and essentially assures him it's okay to go. So let's pick up in verse 2 of chapter 46. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. So, clearly, a promise that you're going to come back and inherit the land, but even while you're there, I'm going to fulfill the multitude of descendants promise to you, at least in part. And then finally, turn to Genesis chapter 50, where we'll see that the book ends with this clear trust in God's promises, that he will bring them up from Egypt back to 
Israel, the land he promised to give them. And in Genesis chapter 50, at the very end, notice verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely visit you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So he's certain, you're going to go back to the land, and I want to go with you. Though dead, take my bones, because I want to be buried there. And probably in in the anticipation of the resurrection. Certainly Jesus read these narratives to indicate that the patriarchs had the hope of the resurrection, that they believed they too would inherit the land, even if they died, the first time before it was actually realized because they would be raised again in the resurrection to participate in those promises. So all of this is pointing us forward in hope that we will both see in Egypt them multiplying tremendously and that after those four generations they will be brought back into the land. So with that, now let's look at some of those high-level facts about um, Exodus. So first of all, like the situation... As with Genesis, Moses composed Exodus for Israel during the time between the Exodus and Moses' death just before Israel entered the Promised Land. So the same situation as Genesis. Sometime in between there. We aren't really sure exactly when. Sometime in between the Exodus and the time when he dies at the end of that 40-year period is when he would have written it. What's the purpose You guys don't have to write this down because what I'm reading to you is exactly what you have on your handout. The purpose of the book of Exodus, to encourage and instruct Israel in faithfulness. So notice that the purpose is to encourage and instruct Israel in faithfulness by relating God's faithfulness to his promises. Specifically, three of them. His faithfulness in multiplying them, his faithfulness in delivering them from Egypt, And three, his faithfulness in establishing his relational presence among them through the Sinaitic covenant and the tabernacle. And then I have footnotes there that actually kind of explain for you in detail each part of that purpose. The problem with trying to explain the purpose of a 40-chapter book in one sentence is it becomes very dense. And so I realized that uh, the footnotes could help to kind of expand that and yet still have a nice compact purpose. All right, next structure. The book of Exodus is quite a bit simpler. Uh, We aren't given a very explicit structure like we were in the book of Genesis with those headings. These are the generations of. Uh, But it still seems to fall into these three parts pretty easily. First, the Exodus from Egypt in chapters 1 through 18. Then the, the creation of the Sinaitic Covenant in chapters 19 through the middle of 24. And then finally, the tabernacle in chap- the, from the middle of chapter 24 through the end of chapter 40. So now, with that set, let's start working through it section by section. So first, the first section, the exodus from Egypt. And in chapter 1 is where we see God's faithfulness to his promise to multiply Abraham's descendants. And in verses 1 to 6, God quickly reviews what kind of the facts we knew from the book of Genesis. That they had all gone down to Egypt, and that uh, there all of the the 12 sons of Jacob had died. But then notice verse 7. He gives kind of a generic statement of this promise to multiply Abraham's descendants. 
But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. What what kind of passages from Genesis does that remind you of? Can you think of any particular ones? Genesis, yeah, 9, right, where he's talking to Noah and kind of restores those original creation blessings. Is that what you have in mind? No, I was thinking where the land was filled with people. Okay. But, yeah, that would work too. Yeah, <laughs> isn't it there, though, violence, that the land was filled with violence? Yeah, filled with violence, but which came from multiple people. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> um, Israelites were still sinful. For one thing, we saw that all of this comes from Genesis one twenty eight, right? That original blessing commission, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. But we also saw that that was picked up and resumed in God's promises to Abraham, right? That he would have a multitude of descendants. And one thing that's interesting is that initial phrase in the blessing commission from Genesis one twenty eight isn't really mentioned very often, but it comes up again here. And Moses uses the ambiguity in this word, this Hebrew word, to kind of help see fulfillment in a small form. So the very same word is used in 128 for filling the earth, as is translated here, the land was filled with them. Because the word can mean either somewhat of a limited geographical region or the whole earth. And so he's able to say, in contextually, the land was filled with them, but with very clear allusions to kind of a partial fulfillment of God's initial um, commission that the whole earth would be filled with them. Then, in verses 8 through 14, we see that not only do they keep multiplying, but specifically they're multiplying in the face of opposition. The Egyptians begin to get concerned that actually these Israelites are so numerous that they could actually begin to outpopulate us and create a threat for us. So what do they do? Well, they say, let's impose hard labor. And apparently enough hard labor to either stop their multiplication or to decrease their population. So this is pretty serious hard labor they're imposing. But notice what happens. Verse 12. The more they afflicted them and the more they multiplied Uh, Sorry, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were, the Egyptians were in dread of the sons of Israel. The the grammar there, the syntax is is really saying that it's like tit for tat. As they keep heightening it, we're going to afflict them more to slow this down. The speed at which they multiply keeps increasing. Just they can try to stop the Lord's purposes, but he will keep his promises is what Moses wants us to see. Then, we continue to see this multiplication, the Lord being faithful to his promises, even in the face of opposition, in this next scene, verses 15 through 21. Here, he actually says, okay, let's be a little more radical, not just giving them lots of labor, making these bricks, but let's actually talk to the midwives and say, whenever a boy is born, just kill him on the spot. But, In the face of that threat, look at verse 20. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. And then, verse 21, because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. 
And both the, the assertion that he established households for them, as well as some limited background evidence that midwives would have been barren women because they didn't have children at home to care for, so you'd have some freedom to do this, suggests that even the barrenness is being overturned, and now they have households. They have children in their own home. So you can see the curse is in some sense being rolled back, and we're seeing the promises fulfilled. And then the final verse, verse 22, introduces yet another threat. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. But then there's a transition, because he doesn't then follow that up by saying, but they kept multiplying, but he zooms in now on a particular son who's spared, who now will become the deliverer, Moses, for the people of Israel. So we're going to see a bit of a transition here, um, but nonetheless a threat the Lord's going to overturn. Now we've got to move quickly through this next section on the birth and commissioning of Moses, which is chapters 2 through 4. But let me first take you to chapter 2, the end of chapter 2. Now what I want you to see here is that the Exodus event is not a random act of mercy by the Lord, just delivering a people from oppression. But it's directly related to the promise to Abraham, specifically the promise to make him a great nation in the land of Canaan. So Exodus chapter 2 verse 23 Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. So we can see that what's going to follow is all sort of framed in relationship to God's promise to Abraham and most obviously relation to the land promise, right? So that's the context in which we must read it. And again, very clear that it's part two of the book of Genesis. And then from chapter three to the middle of chapter four, um, we hear about Moses commissioning at the burning bush. And notice that chapter three, verse eight also makes clear that the goal of the Exodus is to fulfill the land promise. It says, this is the Lord speaking to Moses, So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. So clearly, not just delivering them, but taking them to the land, fulfilling the land promise, and then as far as I can remember, this is the first time that, that the land of Canaan is presented with sort of this, I don't know how to, how to phrase it, an, an Edenic echo, right? Flowing with milk and honey. It just sounds like a garden. It sounds like lush, a wonderful land where there's plenty. And so this land of Canaan is being presented in those terms, which aligns perfectly with what we've already seen even without those echoes, that the land being given to Abraham is sort of like a new garden from which they're going to bless and multiply. They're going to multiply and then extend the boundaries, really extend the blessings to all creation. And then in the rest of this dialogue, this commissioning of Moses, we see those 
objections you're probably familiar with. You probably remember Moses objecting. No, I can't do it for this reason or for that reason. And God graciously responding and trying to address uh, his concerns, but also help him to get over those. And then in the rest of chapter 4, like verses 18 through 31, it recounts Moses' return to Egypt um, and that he and Aaron explained to the elders of Israel the deliverance of Israel that the Lord had planned. And even before that epic confrontation between the Lord and Pharaoh, we already see that the Lord's not only anticipating Pharaoh's obstinance, but explains that in some measure, he will be the cause of that obstinance. Look at chapter 4, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but... I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So not only is it going to be obstinate, but the Lord's going to cause this in part. Why? Why would the Lord almost even be thwarting the very thing he's purposing to do? We'll see. So next we move into what I've outlined as just being chapter 5, verse 1, through really the middle of chapter 15. And I've called it the Lord's command, Pharaoh's hard heart, and the knowledge of the Lord. And really, this is kind of the main section of the Exodus. And this is probably the most familiar portion of the book um, to you, recounting the confrontations between Moses and Pharaoh, the plagues, the Passover, and the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, after Moses conveys the Lord's command to Pharaoh that he let God's people go, chapter 5, verse 2, sets up an important theme for the rest of this section. So look at chapter 5, verse 2. Pharaoh responds to the command to let the Lord's people go and says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. Now keep in mind, this word for Lord isn't just the generic word for a Lord. This is God's personal name, Yahweh, that's being referenced here. So there's a specific God of the Hebrews, and Moses says, Yahweh says, let my people go. And Pharaoh, it seems, at least it seems to come through here, a bit, ah, what's the right word for this? You know, just a bit, um, what was that? Yeah, incalcitrant and almost just taunting, right? Who is this guy? Why why should I listen to, to this God? But notice in particular, he asks, who is Yahweh? And then he says, I don't know Yahweh. And that's basically going to be a challenge to the Lord in the rest of this section to make sure that by the end of this, Pharaoh knows who he is, who the Lord is. And then in chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, the Lord tells Moses something he is to relay to Israel. And it helps us, I think, to orient us to the rest of the book. In some ways, we could think of this section, chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, as somewhat kind of a nutshell of much of what we find in the book. Here, Moses is supposed to say to Israel, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgments. So that's one of the significant themes we see, delivering them from uh, bondage. Next, verse 7, Then 
I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So we see this relationship, right, with the Lord that he's establishing. And then finally, verse 8, looking beyond the, the kind of the boundary of Exodus, and even of the Pentateuch, verse 8, I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. So that really covers some of the major things we see. Bringing them out of Egypt, but then also establishing a relationship with them. And pretty much all the book is given to those two themes. Now, you're familiar with the plagues, so I don't need to recount all of the plagues to you, but do follow along with me as we see the way this section develops the theme of knowing the Lord. Responding to Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord. The Lord's going to answer that. So start, we're going to, if you've got your Bibles open, just be ready to keep flipping here. We're going to move consistently forward, though, so that should make it easy. We won't jump all over. So start with chapter 7, verse 3. The Lord says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart in order that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgments. Notice verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. The Lord is intent now upon making sure that he reverses this problem of an ignorance about who he is. And then after the, the rod to changing into a serpent sign, Pharaoh's heart is hard. We see in chapter 7, verse 13. Yet Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. I think that phrase comes up regularly just to remind us that this isn't some kind of like dualistic um, encounter between God and Pharaoh, and maybe Pharaoh's like having the upper hand here. No, this is all under the Lord's control. He knows exactly what's going on here. Next, look at chapter 7, verse 17. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. So that next, that first plague is aimed in order that they would know, that Pharaoh would know who the Lord is. Then, jump on down to 722. But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Now, going into the plague of frogs, chapter 8, actually right after that, Moses asks Pharaoh when he would like the frogs to leave. He basically says, you tell me when you want them to go away, if you've had enough of this. And Pharaoh says, well, tomorrow. He says, okay, it'll be as, as, as you say, but notice why. Verse 10 of chapter 8. Then he said, tomorrow, that's Pharaoh, so he, that is Moses, said, may it be according to your word, in order that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And then look at chapter 8, verse 15. Just go down a couple more verses. But when Pharaoh saw there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. And then... Um, Chapter 8, verse 19, after this plague of gnats, the magicians actually say, wow, 
you know, we can't match this. This surely is the finger of God. But what does Pharaoh say? Pharaoh's heart was hard and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then chapter 8, verse 22, Moses says that when the flies come, the dwelling place of the Hebrews will be spared in order that Pharaoh may know that the Lord is present with Israel. Look at that, chapter 8, verse 22. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people are living, so that no swarms of flies will be there, in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of Israel. But at the end of the flies plague, Pharaoh hardens his heart again. We see that in chapter 8, verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened in his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. Then in chapter 9, verse 7, at the end of the death of the livestock, we find again, Pharaoh's heart is hard. And then at the end of the plague, the the, uh, plague of boils in chapter 9, verse 12, we see again, Pharaoh's heart is hard. This time, though, actually, the Lord's beginning to do the hardening. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And then at the beginning of the plague of hail, we find a really important statement with regard to all of this. So notice chapter 9, verse 13. If you've been struggling to follow along or keep up, make sure you get here. Catch up here. This is an important statement. Chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For, still talking to Pharaoh, For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For, if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason I have allowed you to remain, in order to show my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. So essentially he says, Pharaoh, just think about this. I could have easily sent a pestilence and, and have you all wiped out in a short bit of time. All the Egyptians from the face of the earth could be gone in a short bit of time, instantly if I wanted to. So I don't need all these plagues. I don't need to keep multiplying these. I don't need to keep going on with this dialogue. But why is he doing it? He says, in order that I may show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. He wants to make himself known through all the earth. Now, jump on down to chapter 9, verse 29. Moses said to Pharaoh, as soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease And there will be hail no longer in order that you may know that the earth belongs to the Lord. And then, notice the very end of chapter 9. Pharaoh's heart is still hard. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Pharaoh's heart was hard and he did not let the sons of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the beginning of chapter 10, just before the eighth plague, the plague of locusts. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants in order that I may perform these signs of mine among them 
And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I, the Lord, made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them in order that you may know that I am the Lord. Pharaoh is clearly getting more than he had bargained for. The Lord is relentless in making sure that he knows. And then chapter 10, verse 20, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go. And then notice after the the ninth plague, the plague of darkness, chapter 10, verse 27, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he was not willing to let them go. And then leading into the final plague, the plague of the death of the firstborn, we read in chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of the land. Now, jump over chapters 12 and 13 and look at chapter 14. So remember, that was right at the last plague, the plague of the death of the firstborn that he says, but he's still not going to respond. He's still going to have a hard heart. How does he do that? That was the last plague. Well, remember that he's going to say they can go, And they start leaving the land. And then chapter 14 tells us at the beginning, the Lord actually says, Moses, tell them to take such and such a route so that Pharaoh will think they're lost. And he'll he'll begin wondering, what did I do? They're just lost in the wilderness. Why did I let these slaves go? They don't even know where they're going. And he'll send his army out because I want one more chance to show him who I am. So he intentionally draws him out. And then we see in chapter 14, verse 4, Thus, the Lord says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after them and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Then we see verse 8 of chapter 14 that as this is unfolding, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel and the sons of Israel were going out boldly. And then look down at verses 17 and 18 of chapter four, chapter 14. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots, and through his horsemen. So undoubtedly... This exodus is primarily aimed at the Lord fulfilling his promise for the land, right? Undoubtedly, that's the primary purpose. But why? Why is it so extended? Why not do it more simply? I want you to see that the narrative is clearly going to great lengths to help us see that the Lord wants to say something about who he is, not simply to fulfill the promise, And in the midst of this, it's interesting because Israel is blessed. Israel, as they know who the Lord is, that's for their good. And they're moving in the direction of going to Sinai, where they're going to make this covenant with the Lord and enter into this relationship with him that is for their good, that results in blessing for them. The Lord making himself known is a beautiful thing. But for those who oppose him, for those who are obstinate, it's painful, isn't it? So would you see the Lord making himself known? We've really seen in this section the, 
the aspect of him making himself known to those who are opposing him, and it looks painful. And if that's all you saw, you might think the Lord's a bit vindictive and mean. Like, Pharaoh, just ask a question, bro. Do you really have to, like, let, let everything loose on him like that? But there's also the other side that we're going to keep seeing, that we've been seeing in Genesis, that it's simply a matter of how one responds. And at any point, Pharaoh could have responded more positively. There's actually a section here, I don't have it in my notes right now, but where we see that a mixed multitude went up with Israel out of the land in the Exodus. That means people who aren't Israelites went with them. The text doesn't tell us too many more details, but it seems like these are nations being blessed in Abraham and in his seed. They're saying, this is the Lord? (laughs) This is something special. Like, we're going with these guys. We want to be with this nation. And they're being blessed in that. And presumably, when they get to Sinai, they're becoming a part of that nation and that covenant. And they're benefiting from that. We'll also see, in just a moment, we'll actually take a look at this. There's another Midianite who seems to, in some ways, respond positively to the revelation of who the Lord is. Um, But now, let's take one moment to look at chapter 15. So chapter 14 recounts the crossing of the Red Sea. Chapter 15 now commemorates this in song. It really celebrates what the Lord has done in the overthrow of the Egyptians at the Red Sea. And we won't read all of it, but I want you to notice in particular two verses. Verse 13, In your loving kindness you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength you have guided them to your holy habitation. Well, It's not exactly clear where that is. That could be Mount Sinai that they're going toward, or it could be looking beyond that to the promised land where the Lord will dwell. But it will become clear with verse 17. Verse 17. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And this verse in particular seems to be looking forward to the promised land as that place where the Lord dwells, right? Whether in verse 13, your holy habitation, or in verse 17, the mountain of your inheritance, or a little bit later in verse 17, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary which your hands have established. So it's all about moving in this direction of putting them where the Lord dwells, right? That's what the land's supposed to be, a new garden where the Lord dwells, But notice what he does with them. What is that verb? He's going to put them in the land how? Say it again. Plant. Where do you plant things? Maybe in a garden? I think this is is the very same Hebrew word used in chapter 2, that the Lord planted a garden. So it sounds like he's even picking up on the same language, the same metaphors, just to make the point that this is what's happening. This is the whole imagery. It's a land flowing with milk and honey after all. It's the land where the Lord dwells. The Lord is in many ways moving us back in the direction of restoring his creation purposes through Israel. Now, we find in chapters, really the rest of chapter 15, chapter 16, and chapter 17, this time between Egypt and Mount Sinai. And these scenes largely just recount their grumbling, because there's not water, there's not food, if there's manna, there's not meat. And the Lord um, is gracious with them and continues to provide for them. But look particularly at chapter 18. This is just as they're nearing Mount Sinai. And this is now coming to the end of this first section. 
Here, Moses meets up with Jethro, his father-in-law, and it appears that Jethro was a pagan priest previously. He met him when he was fleeing from the Egyptians because he had killed an Egyptian um, and married his daughter. But here's this, essentially a pagan priest who comes out to meet them. He hears this whole nation's moving across the wilderness to him. And I want you to notice, as Moses recounts all the Lord has done, in other words, an invitation to know the Lord, notice what he says in verse 11 of chapter 18. Now I know that the Lord, Yahweh, is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. So we just notice here this response, this positive response. And really, this closes the whole section beginning in chapter 5 and gives kind of a, a final conclusion to Pharaoh's question. Who's the Lord? Why should I listen to the Lord? And here we find someone who's not even an Israelite who's learning the lesson that should be learned. He now knows who the Lord is. So, just to summarize this whole first section, chapters 1 through 18, it reports the Lord's faithfulness to his promises to Abraham, both to multiply his descendants and to bring them out of Egypt with the goal of bringing them into the promised land. And you guys should have that written there in your notes. All right, before we move on, coming to the end of that first section, any questions? Go ahead. Um, this may be not something we have time for, but do you see a difference or a significance to the difference between like Pharaoh hardening his heart or the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart? Yeah. I can share with you a table I have that trace out the verbs and the, the form they're used in to indicate who the agent is in the action. And it does seem like there's a bit of a pattern that starts early on with more of a, it just saying Pharaoh's heart is hard. And then near the end is where you start seeing more of God being the agent. He's hardening his heart. So I'm not sure there's like this really clear conclusion to be drawn other than I would note that God's not coming to someone who has a soft heart and is wanting to yield and imposing a hard heart on him according to his natural inclinations. That's not what's happening. The, he's already got a hard heart. He's already in that direction. And the Lord c- continues to kind of reinforce that. In many ways, I think it might be similar to the pattern we see in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, where he hands them over, right? They're already engaging in idolatry, and he gives them over. Is that helpful? Okay. All right, so now we come to the second of the three major sections. This one's shorter, chapter 19, really through the middle of chapter 24, and this is the Sinaitic Covenant. First of all, terminology. So Mosaic Covenant is a much more familiar term, but the Mosaic Covenant really comprises two parts. One part that's made here at Mount Sinai and one part that's recorded in Deuteronomy made on the plains of Moab that's just east of the Jordan at the very end of the 40 years of sojourning just before Moses dies and just before Joshua takes them into the land. And these two parts really comprise what we know of as the Mosaic Covenant. Um, So Mosaic Covenant is is good language, helpful terminology, um, but because we're kind of taking our time and we're looking at them piece by piece, we're only seeing part of it now and we'll see part of it later. So what I'm saying now refers to the portion of the Mosaic Covenant made at Sinai, which is often referred to as the Sinaitic Covenant, 
And then later, when we get to Deuteronomy, we'll look at the portion made there, which we could think of as the covenant made on the plains of Moab or the Deuteronomic covenant. So when I keep saying Sinaitic covenant, just think it is the same as Mosaic covenant. You could replace it with that term. It's just because we're looking in detail. It's helpful to split them out. All right, so that's just explaining the terminology. But on the front end, I want to really briefly explain what is the relationship of this Sinaitic covenant to the Abrahamic covenant. On the one hand, it is certainly distinct from the Abrahamic covenant. Not everyone would agree with me in that, but I think it's certainly distinct. It's not merely a renewal of the Abrahamic covenant, but it's also very closely related to the Abrahamic covenant and subordinate to it. So if you think about the scope of what the Abrahamic covenant is trying to accomplish, the Sinaitic covenant falls within that. Um, I may draw a diagram up here in a moment, but just think of someone... Let me give you this term first. It might be helpful to think of the Sinaitic covenant as administrative in relation to the Abrahamic covenant. It's administering it. Think of someone setting out a general high altitude vision for something and then separately submitting a detailed plan for how he's going to carry out that vision. Does that make sense? Within that little illustration, the Abrahamic covenant would be that kind of high altitude general plan And the Mosaic Covenant would be that detailed explanation about how he's going to accomplish that. And really, the Sinaitic Covenant doesn't add much detail to the promises of the Abrahamic Covenant. um, But it does add a lot to the expectations for Israel. So think about a covenant as being two sides in an agreement. God's side and man's side. The promises would be what God's going to do, and then the conditions or whatever would be man. what's expected of man. In the Abrahamic covenant, we don't see much about what's expected of man. There's a little bit, but not much. It's almost always this is what God's going to do. And it's almost like the Mosaic covenant now comes along and says, if you're going to partake in those promises, if you're going to receive those promises... Here's what you need to do. And so it's giving more detail of what that's going to look like. Let me actually just kind of show you this. In the Abrahamic covenant, it's not as though there wasn't, there weren't any kind of expectations for um, Abraham and his descendants. Consider, let me just read this to you so you don't have to flip there. In Genesis chapter 18, we read this. The Lord said, he's talking to the two angels with him, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Notice what he's promised to him. So there's a connection, even in Genesis, about the Abrahamic covenant to doing those things, teaching his children and their children, um, keeping the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. There's a connection between that and really receiving the promises. But what it means to keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, is pretty vague, isn't it? And so in some ways, the Mosaic covenant is filling that out. It's explaining that in more detail for Israel in their situation. 
And then just one more text to help you see that. Genesis chapter 26, we read kind of after the fact as Abraham or as the Lord appears to Isaac and passes on the covenant to him. We read chapter 26, verse 4, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and will give your descendants all these lands and by your descendants all these nations of the earth, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And so in really ways, it seems like the Mosaic Covenant, the Sinaitic Covenant, is aimed at filling that out. What are these charges, commandments, statutes, laws that need to be kept by the descendants of Abraham so that they will participate in that? Remember the distinction. God promised that he would fulfill those blessings, those promises, to Abraham. Nothing that Israel or anyone else does will ever terminate God's purpose to do that. The question is, who will be the ones who inherit those promises? And it won't be just anyone. It will be those who are faithful. Does that make sense? But if you have a whole generation that's not faithful, that doesn't suddenly mean God gives up on the covenant altogether. God still purposes to keep that covenant. So, just to draw a very simple diagram up here, if you think of the Abrahamic covenant, don't think of, do not think of the um, Sinaitic covenant as being parallel to it over here. It really is sort of like it's mediating or administrating, it's called the SC, the Sinaitic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. It's kind of, this is how the Lord's going to bring it about. And because of that, the Lord can at any time remove this and replace it with something else, which is, in my estimation, what he has done with the new covenant. Still maintaining the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant continues. That's the way the Lord's going to redeem the earth. It's not going to be done away with. But the question is just, how is he going about it? And the Mosaic covenant was the means for a while, and now that has been done away with, and now it's been replaced with a new covenant. Does that make sense? So it's simply fulfill a way the Lord's going to carry that out. All right. Look at chapter 19. And I gave you a diagram there. Hopefully this makes sense to you. Sometimes I wonder if I... If you spend too much time trafficking and analyzing grammar, you assume that things are obvious to people that really may not be obvious. But hopefully this makes sense to you, that little diagram I have there. Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And... You shall be to be a royalty of priests or king priests and a holy nation. So this is a summary of the Sinaitic covenant. And I put it in uh, two forms here. So you can see, first of all, in red, we've got the condition. This starts with Israel's side of the agreement. And it's very generic. But chapters 20 through 23 are going to fill that out. They're going to explain what this covenant is, the voice that needs to be obeyed. And then it gives God's side of the covenant in green. And I want to focus on that just a bit here. Um, Even though different language is used here than was used of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis, it seems like conceptually it's really the same sort of thing. So when we come to treasured possession, this seems to be related, just to kind of 
over, overlay these things so you can see the connections to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis, it seems that this is sort of related to, if you think about Genesis 12, 2 and 3, where it says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. In order that you will be a blessing and all nations will be blessed in you. There's a sense in which he narrows his focus in on Abraham in order that all nations will be blessed. And I think that's the same sense in which now Abraham's descendants, Israel, are going to be a treasured possession, even though all the earth is his, right? He, belong, he owns all peoples, but he's going to focus in particularly to this particular nation that will be his treasured possession. And then he says in verse 6, the second half, and you shall be to me, I've translated there a royalty of priests. I think, I'll try to make this brief here. I think most translations, modern English translations, go with kingdom of priests, the word here in this context really connotes like a, a group of people ruling as kings. And in modern English, kingdom is more likely to con- convey, convey um, a group of people who are ruled over by a king, right? Not the ones actually ruling, but the word here seems to be more active. In fact, most all ancient translations translate something like kings and priests. Um royalty of priests royalty is the closest I can come to to think of a group of people who function like kings right royalty Um, some people say uh, a royal priesthood that could work too it gets both those ideas they're both kings and priests and essentially can you think of anyone else that we've seen so far in the storyline who functions like both kings and priests Melchizedek that's excellent yep and actually, the connection to him is still a bit less clear. Anyone else? Adam. Yeah, Adam in many ways. Yeah, Adam seemed to function similarly. And so kingship is pretty clear. We've already seen that and talked about that with regard to Genesis chapter 1. But priests are essentially just mediating between God and others, right? And that's exactly what we've already seen. Adam had responsibility to kind of enjoy God's blessing. He's close to God, and yet from that garden to extend those blessings of the garden to cover the whole earth. Same with Abraham. Abraham becomes this great nation that's got a special relationship with God. We see here even his descendants become a treasured possession, but for what purpose? In order that all nations may be blessed, right? So there's that mediatorial priestly role. So when it says there to be a king, kings and priests, that's what's in view And then a holy nation simply indicates that this nation will be devoted or consecrated to the Lord. So just note that this marks a restoration of God's relational presence with Israel. A reality enjoyed in the garden, lost in the rebellion, and partially restored in Abraham and his descendants. Um, As we've seen these various promises of Abraham, we focused a lot on the promise of multiplying descendants and land, but also in chapter 17, the Lord says, I will be God to your descendants, to you and to your descendants. And we haven't seen that develop too much, but it's really clear here where the Lord's creating this relationship with them. And as we're about to see in this last section, he's establishing his presence among them. So, The rest of this section really just goes on to detail what is that voice of the Lord that they are to keep? What is his covenant? And it's given to us in two parts. First, the summary of it in the Ten Commandments, and then the book of the covenant kind of fills that out a bit more. 
So the summary for that second section um, is, should be there on your sheet. The second section of the book explains the covenant God created with Israel at Mount Sinai as the conditions for Israel to inherit the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. And now finally, for the tabernacle. This third and final section of the book provides instructions for the tabernacle. At the end, it explains the actual construction of the tabernacle. And in between, there's that interesting golden calf scene, right between the instructions for it and the actual construction of it. We won't go through all the details about the the tabernacle's instructions, but just consider briefly the purpose of it. I'm going to go quickly, but you have this on your sheet, so you shouldn't have to take notes, um, and you can look back at this. The purpose of the tabernacle is clearly to be a dwelling place for God among Israel. And you can see that in those two Exodus passages. But why is a tabernacle needed to facilitate that? I think there's two primary reasons that God uses a tabernacle. First, this act of God dwelling among men is a reinstatement of an aspect of the Garden of Eden. And the tabernacle makes this explicit. So jump on down to that table. Because I'll see that table. I have to go one more page forward. You know, trying to fit an almost page-sized table on a sheet messes things up. So land it here. I've just delineated here um, four areas where I think we see connections between the tabernacle and the garden. First, cherubim. We find that the entrance to the garden was guarded by cherubim after man was evicted. And we find cherubim throughout the tabernacle. First, they're woven into the interior covering of the tabernacle such that the cherubim could be seen on the sides and ceiling from the inside. And also, interestingly and significantly, they're woven into the veil which separated the holy place from the most holy place. Can you imagine how that's like gardening, like just at the, the cherubim sitting at the edge of the garden, the east side of the garden, and keeping them from coming in? So the Holy of Holies becomes that garden replacement. And thirdly, cherubim were stationed over the ark, which was the place God would manifest himself to meet with man. Then very generically, secondly, it's just the place where God dwells with man, right? That's what the garden was. And now we've got a new place where God consistently will dwell and meet with man. So there's a very significant conceptual overlap between the two. The literary structure is interesting. The instructions for the tabernacle are clearly divided into seven sections, each one with beginning with, and God said, and the seventh section is all about observing the Sabbath. So it seems like he's intentionally broken up the instructions like this to help us compare that with God's creation in Genesis chapter 1. And then finally, the tree of life. We don't have any explicit statement about what the tree of life is indicating. But, sorry, not the tree of life. Did I say the tree of life this whole time? The lampstand, the menorah, the, that has the seven branches, right? It is clearly presented in, what we say, arboreal language, tree-like language, um, with these almond blossoms and such. And it seems like its placement there is intended to make us think of the tree of life. So there's another connection there. This is where the tree of life is found. This is where the blessings of God's presence are found. There are other ones. If you go to other passages, like in the temple in 1 Kings, where it's constructed, you see even more connections. If you look prophetically in Ezekiel or in Zechariah, you can see the prophetic temple looking forward, that there will be even more connections there. 
Um, and there are even some other connections I haven't put in here. But here are some basic ones to help you see that the tabernacle is intended to look like a reinstatement of the garden. And the imagery here helps us to see that. Um, under B there, the second purpose of the tabernacle. Why is the tabernacle needed for God to dwell with man? Well, though the Lord is once again dwelling with humanity, it's not the same. The rebellion radically changed the relationship between God and humans, and no longer can humans enjoy uninhibited communion with the Lord like they did in the garden. And the tabernacle maintains a necessary degree of separation between the Lord and his people, even while he dwells among them. I think that's probably the significance for why in Revelation 22, it says there was no temple there, right? There's no longer a need for that. The people are transformed and we fully restored and completed what God purposed to do in the garden. But in the meantime, we're still sinful. He's still holy. And if we're going to make this work, there has to be some kind of caution and care and method to it. I think really the, the design of the cherubim helpfully brings these two purposes together. On the one hand, it reminds us of the garden. On the other hand, it reminds us that the cherubim aren't mentioned in the garden until after man's evicted and they guard him coming into it, right? So those two aspects are helpfully brought out there. So um, we find that in 24 through 31, the instructions for the tabernacle are given. In 35 through 40, the tabernacle is actually constructed But right in between, there's the golden calf incident. So interesting. Like, why would it fall right there, right in between? Even before Moses can, like, complete the covenant and come back down, they're already, you know, creating this this golden calf and breaking the covenant. Moses comes down and casts down the two tablets with the Ten Commandments on them and shatters them, which seems to... A reality, but also symbolize the breaking of the covenant on Israel's part. They've broken these, at least the first two commandments. They've broken this. And as they go back and forth, as the Lord, sorry, as Moses is pleading with the Lord, don't give up on Israel, it's getting nowhere until the revelation of the Lord's character in Exodus chapter 34. So look at Exodus chapter 34. We are almost done here. Everything changes as the Lord reveals his character here. Exodus chapter 34, look at verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him, with Moses, as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children, on the grandchildren, to the third and fourth generations. And then, right away, look at verse 10. Then God said, Behold, I am going to make a covenant before all the people I will perform miracles. And he continues with the covenant, and it's finished. So what's the, what's the transition point? It's God's character, right? Not some kind of another rash promise from Israel that, no, surely we'll do better next time. That's silly to think about how quickly they already turned aside and broke the covenant. If the covenant's going to continue, it's only because of the Lord's character. And yet, notice that there's two sides to that, right? It's not just that the Lord forgives. It's also that he punishes. 
And so if at some point we find the obstinance and the wickedness and the transgression of Israel to continue on and on and on, that that covenant may no longer prove viable, a means to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. And something may happen like exile. They may be cast out of that land because of breaking the covenant. And then at the very end, we find that God takes up residence in the tabernacle and thus residing in the midst of Israel. And this is quite significant in the storyline. We haven't seen such a consistent dwelling of God with humans since the start of the rebellion in Genesis 3. And those last two sections of the book, the Sinaitic Covenant and the Tabernacle, together highlight the restoration of God's relational presence. They are his people, he is their God, and they dwell, or he dwells in their midst. So I summarize that section as, this final section explains the role of the tabernacle in facilitating God's presence in Israel's midst, but also reminds Israel that he dwells in their midst and maintains the covenant because of his mercy alone, not because they are able to maintain their side of the covenant. So what about transgression of the covenant? I mean, chapters 32 and 34 have already made it clear that this is going to happen, right? They're wicked people. So what's going to happen the next time they do this? Does this arrangement have any hope of continuing? Is there anything to be done about their sin when they commit sin? That's where Moses is going to go next in the book of Leviticus, telling us what can be done about sin to maintain the covenant even among sinful people. Any questions? Go ahead. Let me skip over that question for now. Remember our covenant at the beginning. <laughs> Any others? That's a lot of covenants. Yeah, there are a lot of covenants. All right, let me pray for us as we close, and then you guys are welcome to ask any other questions afterward. Lord, we do thank you for your grace. Uh, We are totally dependent upon that very same character that spared Israel Um, at that time. It's the very thing we still depend upon. So thank you for being a gracious God. And thank you for Christ who has come and inaugurated a better covenant um, that is actually possible to bring about all of these promises. Um, We thank you that we are actually participating in those now not because we're necessarily in ourselves so much better than Israel, but because through this new covenant and the new hearts that it gives and the Holy Spirit that's ours, we're able to be faithful in a way that is pleasing to you. And because of what Christ has done on our behalf, we're seen to be right before you, even though we aren't right in ourselves. So we thank you for that, Lord. And we thank you for the opportunity to spend some time together looking at this book and better understanding it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.